Blog Talk Radio. Hey, everyone, this is Tom Hayes. Good morning. This is, uh, boy, Tuesday. I can't believe how the uh, the time is flying here. And uh, there's our guest. And uh, let's just check it out. We're going to, uh, here we go. Let's do this. Jane. Hello. Jane. <laughs> this is Tom Hayes. At- Tom Hayes in Boston, Hi, Tom. Hi. Jane, I can't tell you how psyched I am to have you on the show. I've been reading your blogs and following your newsletter and mm-hmm. love, absolutely love your stuff, your work, your example, your, uh, your, you know, getting your life story. And on the air with us this morning is Rosemary Bakshia Young from Maine, uh, USA, and uh, so welcome, and I've got to tell you, just a little before I read your introduction, I want to, uh, you know, just tell you a little bit about Rosemary. Rosemary and I met one of the, through the, one of those uh, cosmic connections, and Rosemary is a, a, a mother of um, two daughters, uh, one who just came out of being a teenager and the other one who was just entering, and that <laughs> daughter, uh, well, I'll let, I'll let Rosemary explain a little bit, but <laughs> actually, before I'm going to do that, I'm going to give the introduction that you deserve. Uh, okay. Jane is a power, and, uh, Jane is a powerhouse on the female empowerment stage. If the subject is female, you want to hear her on your team platform, and her credibility and validity in this market is unquestionable. She's an awesome speaker, intuitive coach, author, blogger, and media commentator, game changer, serial entrepreneur, social leader, team girl advocate, ambassador for enterprise, visionary thinker, and all-around motivational diva. To say she rocks is an understatement. And it goes on and on about how you've uh, dealt, overcome adversity, how you've you know, been an entrepreneur, or as you say, a serial entrepreneur. So mm-hmm. what we want to do in this uh, this program is hear your story. I mean, these things that you do are absolutely necessary, your message. But we'd like to hear the stories. Both uh, Rosemary and I and our listeners would love to hear how this all came about, how you overcame mm-hmm. the adversity. And and became the the individual you are today. Okay, cool. You want to hear that now, or are we going to hear about Rosemary? Well, okay, Rosemary, why don't you tell a little bit so we get a perspective and a grounding on who you are and what you bring in terms of what, what the adversity you're going through and you go through every single day that you've turned that adversity into an asset and uh, talk about you and Victoria and and uh, we can go from there. Yes, Tom. Okay. Hi, Jane. Nice to meet Hi, you. Hi, Rosemary. Uh, yes. Uh, as Tom said, I have two girls. I have one daughter that is going to be 20 in September, and she's in the medical field. She's a CNA, CRMA. She's going for her RN. And she was inspired by her little sister, Victoria, who's now going to be 13 in May. And Victoria has Rett syndrome, R-E-T-T. Are you familiar with Rett? I've heard of it, but I wouldn't say I was familiar with it. Yeah, about many many people have heard, and some you know have uh, some idea, but some a lot of people haven't. It's one of those that hasn't gotten as much attention, I would say, as most like cerebral palsy and all. Uh-huh. Rhett is a neurological uh, disorder. Uh, and to sum it up, so I don't usually I don't go through a long spiel. Is to sum it up, Rhett syndrome. These girls, it's mainly in girls, more prominent, um, are 
pretty much prisoners inside themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. Quite a quite a blunt way to put it, but the only way to put it. And she is fully aware of everything going on around her, her surroundings, who you know, who we everyone is. She knows what she wants to do. It's just that connection of doing it. Um, mm-hmm. She is she is immobile. She is in a wheelchair. She cannot use her hands right, you know, correctly, you know, a lot of the time we have to, you know, give her her food and Mm -hmm. and, and all. And she is unable to express herself fully. A lot of the girls, they call the girls with Rett syndrome silent angels because some of them, they cannot talk at all. Mm. Victoria and others have hit some of, they say, the milestones of a word or two. And we, after a while, you learn to... You just you speak a whole new language. It's, mm. it's a whole new way to communicate, and uh, so it's, as, yeah, and that's the reason mm. I wanted Rosemary to just give mm. you a little grounding because you can imagine. You know, we talk about adversity, and you know, I've gone through mine. You've gone through yours, Jane. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, I just admire Rosemary for the mountain she climbs every single day. Absolutely. So using that kind Absolutely. of as a, a counterpoint, tell us your story. How that you you overcame your adversities and how you came. To this path, you know, it was fun, funny. I looked at, I knew I had a connection with you. And Rosemary, I gotta warn you, she's an intuitive, she's empathic. Mm-hmm. She uh, yeah. she picked up a, a strong sense from you that you know you're this very centered, and, um, mm-hmm. and you know positive person. And that's everything mm-hmm. I got out of your readings. So um, you know, tell us how you know yeah. what happened along the way. How did you get here? Well, I, I suppose I've had a life littered with critical moments like most people have and and it's kind of what happens to you in those critical moments that what defines you isn't it and I was brought up in a very wealthy family so it sounds like I had this great background um, but I had a very um, dysfunctional relationship with both my parents so I had a very difficult relationship with my mother um, who I really didn't get on with and, and she didn't get on with me and then I was a real daddy's girl so I had a very um, intense relationship with my father. I was his favorite child, and I was the middle child, and I was treated very differently, and I spent an awful lot of time with him, and that relationship was pretty unhealthy, and is probably what led to the re- relationship breakdown with my mother. But um, I kind of had a very difficult teenage um, life. I went to lots of different schools. Um, my father really couldn't decide what to do with me, whether to put me in independent private schools or whether to put me in the state system. So I was always in a new school, um, which actually, on reflection, taught me an awful lot. Um, but when I was 15, he decided to put me into a very different school. He took me out of a very small all-girls school and put me into a very big rough-and-tumble school in the state sector uh, where I got bullied and victimized and teased and hurt and um, you know, beat up every day and had a dreadful time and realized I needed to change who I was to survive that school, which I did very successfully, but that created even more problems for me at home because I changed my personality, I changed my identity to fit in in this school. So by the age of 16, I was kicked out of home. And wow. my father... Wow. Yeah, <laughs> my father made a decision... Wow. He chose between me and my mother, and he he, he was very honest about it. Um, I was fighting with my mother all the time, and he basically said, it's you or her, and you lost, and um, I'm going to take you to a, a guest house tomorrow, and I've paid for you for six weeks, and after that, you're on your own. And I never want to see you again. 
And I never want you to contact any of your siblings. Um, in fact, if I walk past you on the street, I will not acknowledge you. Oh. So that was kind of my first big critical moment. <laughs> 16, alone, broke, uh, nobody. And uh, far from being devastated at the time about that, my overriding emotion was anger. And I kind of channeled that anger in a very positive way. Um, I channeled it into my career because one of the things I'd done to fit into this big school is I'd dumbed down. And so I left school with nothing. I was really bright. I I should have come out of school with really good qualifications, but because I was so desperate to fit in, I just didn't do anything. And so here I am now in a pretty boring job that's going nowhere. Fortunately, I had a job. That was one benefit. Um, So I decided to channel my anger and my frustration into my career. And so I had a very, very fast-track corporate career. So over the next 10 years, from 16 to about 27, I just was a complete workaholic. I climbed, I worked, and I studied. And that's all I focused on. And by 26, 27, I had the jackpot job. I had the big title, the corner office, the team, the multi-million pound advertising budget, the company car, the expenses account, you name it, I had it. I was the only woman around the top table in a multinational business. Um, I had two degrees, three postgraduate diplomas and an MBA. And I hit my next critical moment (laughs) because I should have been really deliriously happy at this point because I'd worked really, really hard for this. And I I kind of felt like I I had something to prove I wanted to prove to my father that I didn't need him. I certainly didn't need his money, and I didn't need his approval, and that I would be successful whether he abandoned me or not. And so I was on this real journey to prove myself. But when I got there and I stopped and I couldn't go any further because there wasn't anywhere else to go and I couldn't get any more qualified, I got ill. And um, I literally just woke up one day couldn't speak. And so my voice went for nine weeks. Um, then I got um, stuck in, in the cinema on the front, seat, front row of the cinema. I couldn't get out of my seat one day. And um, I literally got taken straight into hospital, had all these checks, told there was nothing wrong with me, that I was signed off from work for two months. And in those two months, I reflected on where I was. And this was my next critical moment. And I had to start to deal with what happened to me, which I'd really not dealt with. I'd kind of channeled everything into this other life, if you like, and I hadn't really dealt with what happened to me. And so I started on a personal development journey at this point. I did quite a lot of personal development work. Um, At this point, I decided I wanted to come out of corporate world, big business, and be my own boss. So my father is a very successful entrepreneur. I've been brought up by an entrepreneur. He was kind of my world when I was growing up, and I wanted to be like him. So I knew that at some point I was going to set up my own business. I just didn't know what it was going to be. So I'm now 28. Um, I've kind of reached the pinnacle of this corporate career and I'm burnt out. And so um, I decide I'm going to walk away. I decide I'm going to walk away and set up my own business. At the time, I was living with a guy who I believed was my soulmate and I believed that we would be together forever, the dream. And I told him I wanted to go out on my own. He was actually an entrepreneur at the time. He was running his own garage. He was mad on cars, and that's what he was doing. And um, he said to me, before you do that, Jane, I need to get a job because my business isn't doing very well. 
And so I said, well, right, okay, that's fine. He said, but it is your turn, and I am going to support you um, as you supported me, but just let me get a job first. So he got a job, and I resigned. And he went away for two weeks on a training course, and this is my next critical moment, because while he was away, my whole world fell to pieces, because I found out that the past five years that we've been living together, he'd been stealing from me. Oh, and yeah, he'd literally cleared out all our bank accounts. Um, he'd taken out two, three, four different mortgages on our property, so we were now oh. in negative equity. Um, we had all sorts of credit card debt, all in my name. Um, and the only reason I found this out was because for the first time in the many, many years, I opened the Morning Post. And I didn't generally open the Post, he did. And so he was clearly only leaving me the Post that he wanted me to see. So this was another huge moment for me, to what do I do next? So he came back from the course, we sat down, we talked about it. Um, he told me he'd been in terrible trouble with his business, he didn't want to talk to me about it, he was scared of losing me, so on and so forth. So I forgave him, and we carried on. Six months later, we did the same thing. So oh. at this point, I literally reinvented everything about my life. I left him, I left the job I was in, I left the city I was living in, and I just arrived somewhere else where nobody knew me and I started again. So I'm now 28. I set up my first business when I was 28, which was in marketing, which is my background, my professional background. Um, I took two or three of my team with me uh, and my entrepreneurial journey started and I had a lot of fun. And so probably for the next eight to ten years, I was running lots of different businesses. In those eight to ten years, I probably was involved in 12 businesses. So I was setting up businesses, growing them, getting to a point that I was bored with them, selling them, moving on, buying something else, going into partnership with somebody else, setting another business up, growing it, getting bored, moving on. And this was kind of a pattern for me for the next 10 years. And some of those businesses I loved with a passion and made me a very wealthy woman. And some of them I should never have touched with a barge pole and took me to the verge of bankruptcy. So I've been on this roller coaster of entrepreneurship for a long time. And all the businesses I was involved in were all to do with people because I am an absolute people person. So the businesses I was working with, I was working in a marketing business, a PR company, a training company, um, a management development business, uh, a lifestyle management business. So they were all to do with people. And I hit my mid-30s and thought, right, I need to get off this roller coaster and I need to work out what I'm here for. I need to find something with meaning because, you know, I can't keep starting things and stopping them and getting bored and moving on and so on. I need to really understand how I can use my experience and my knowledge and my passion and my interest and my experience and do something with it that is going to give me some feeling of legacy or contribution. About the same time, I'm 35 now, I did meet the man of my dreams, the guy I've been waiting for. And so I literally divested everything. I stepped away from all my businesses. I had two or three businesses at the time. Um, I was sat on the board of a couple of other businesses, and I stepped back from everything, and I took a year out. And, you know, I could say that I'm very lucky to be able to do that, but I don't believe in luck. <laughs> so I think I created that situation. So I stepped back for a year. I did a lot of traveling. I did a lot of thinking. Um, I did a lot of reflecting about where I was and what I wanted to do for the next 10 years. 
And when I came back after that year, I decided I wanted to go into coaching and go into more personal transformation work. So I trained to be a coach in those 12 months. I did NLP, I did cognitive behavior therapy, I did timeline therapy, I did all sorts of investment in me, and I came back and I set up a coaching practice. And for the first year, I loved it. I thought it was a great thing to do. But because at heart I am an entrepreneur and I need to build something, I could feel the boredom starting to arrive, just working on a one-to-one with people. Although I love doing that, and I still do that today, I also needed a bigger platform. So in 2007, um, I set up a business called The Well-Heeled Divas. And The Well-Heeled Divas is all about um, supporting and helping women to shine. So it's helping women step up and recognize their greatness and their inner diva and their inner star and step up and create an outstanding life. And, you know, that means so many different things to so many different women. You know, for some women that might be finding the courage to step out of the corporate world and set up their own business. For other women it might be taking this business that I've actually created and building it into something bigger than me. For other women it might be finding some kind of purpose through community engagement uh, for other women, it might be finding the courage to leave Mr. Wrong in order to create space to attract Mr. Right. So I've been running retreats, personal development workshops, peer groups. I've been coaching women. I've been doing that since 2007. And I absolutely love, love, love working with women. And I, I, I absolutely love working with men too, don't get me wrong. But there is something very magical about working with a group of women. And I love doing that. And so I've been doing that since 2007. But I had some real aha moments two or three years into that business because I started to see quite a lot of red flags around the teenage girl um, niche. And I got lots of red flags. So the first one, um, I got a lot of women that I'd been working with who asked me to coach their teenage daughters. So that was my first red flag. The second thing that happened to me, I used to run motivational events in all the big cities in the UK. And I would do this on a month-by-month basis. And they were two-hour motivational events where I would talk about my story and I would kind of talk about self-belief and the importance of resilience and all these key lessons. And I noticed that, that the women were bringing their daughters to those events too. So that was my second red flag. My third was that I then started getting invited into schools to talk about my entrepreneurial journey. And although I loved doing that, I was really uncomfortable about what I was seeing in terms of the lack of aspiration, the mental health issues around young girls, um, you know, their need to, to focus on how they look versus who they are. Um, some of the stuff that I was talking to them about, they were running out after me into the car park asking me if I would mentor them, which I really wasn't in a position to do because that's not what I'd been invited in to do. So that was my next red flag. And then the biggie was I was invited to speak at a teenage conference in a big city in the UK, and I was the only woman on the platform, and um, I had a massive impact on the girls, and lots of teachers and head teachers were asking me to go into their schools. So I had enough red flags to know that there's something going on here, and there's something that maybe I could, I could contribute to. And so, to cut a long story short, I developed an intervention program. I took it into one school in a really tough area, um, and I worked with 15 girls that were in trouble, seriously derailing, disengaged from school, coming from really, really tough backgrounds, lots of mental health issues, no role models. Um, and I worked with those girls for six months. 
and that's how Girls Out Loud was born. So I had a massive impact on those girls' lives. I realised that that's really what I should be doing. Um, I knew that I couldn't do it on my own. And so in 2010, I set up a social enterprise called Girls Out Loud. And we now go into schools and run intervention programmes for girls, not just the girls that are in trouble, but the girls that sit in the middle of a cohort and kind of cruise along when really they could be superstars uh, if they just had a bit of investment and a bit of mentoring. Um, so now I kind of, I, I say to people, if you cut me down the middle, you'd see female, female empowerment right the way through me because I now work with women and girls. And I do that in a variety of ways. And I enjoy doing both of those because I don't think one's any more important than the other. I think girls need women, and I think women need to step up and be role models for girls. So the whole thing kind of connects for me. So I really do live in my passion. I do what I absolutely love every day, and I'll probably be doing it until I drop. stories and uh, nothing more powerful than what you uh, just told and uh, it really I mean there's so many key um, moments and ingredients Mm -hmm. in that rich rich story I noticed that uh, I I spoke about of the 10 books that were your top 10 I think I read 8 so obviously Mm -hmm. there was some sense of uh, of connection when I first uh, read one of your blogs and um, so in one of them, and I think it's kind of pivotal to all of this, was number one was Louise Hay. Yes. And healing. That was healing. The, I think that was the first personal development book I ever read uh, really? when I was 27. After, mm. Right. And after you had achieved, um, after you had achieved so much, I mean, in terms of what people determine is success, you had achieved, you, you'd gone up the corporate ladder, you got your mm-hmm. degrees, you were making tons of money. And then, bang. So did that happen when all of a sudden you can't speak and you can't get up out of a chair? Or is that when you found her book? Yeah, well, it was when I got ill. And, you know, and I couldn't, nobody could understand why. Because physically, there was nothing wrong with me. But it, obviously, I just stopped speaking. And somebody took my voice away from me. And, and it was a kind of, I think it was a huge wake-up call for me because... Um, I'd been an absolute workaholic for 10 years. I'd, I don't even remember taking a holiday. I was absolutely 100% driven by this corporate ladder. I wanted to climb it and get to the top of it as quickly as possible because I was driven by a need to prove something. My anger was driving me. It wasn't coming from the right place. It was coming from anger. And so when I stopped in my late 20s and I couldn't go anywhere else, that's when my body decided to show me it was not really happy with the way I was going and I got ill and the way I describe that to people it's like um, when you look at Christmas time or family time how many people get ill and also when you go on holiday how many people get off the plane and feel ill and it's the same thing it's like when we allow ourselves to stop because we all live at 90 miles an hour we generally get ill and I hadn't stopped um, I hadn't stopped for 10 years So I had a lot of catching up to do, and I think that my body just said, you're not listening, you know, you're not listening, you're not taking a break, you're not dealing with what's happened to you, you're just trying to channel it into something else, so we're going to start working. And and that's when I started having to ask different questions, and that's when I started my personal development journey. 
Well, of course, a crisis like that, you, you, there's, you're right. You're not going to find the answers in, in uh, the corporate world or work. No. Yeah, um, and so, you know, the truth finally comes. I used to say to people, um, you know, my, my, you know, I, I talk about it almost every show. I mean, at the age of 13, I lost my leg to cancer, a form of cancer that only, um, that only 5% survived in those days. But wow. that, you know, I, when I speak to um, cancer survivor groups, I, I, I tell them that cancer is a curse and a blessing. The curse is obviously the disease, but the blessing comes from all the lessons you learn from the disease yeah. and the love and everything right. else. And my life lesson mm-hmm. was I learned the value of life because I could have, you know, I'm, I'm even lucky to be having this telephone conversation. Mm-hmm. So I learned mm-hmm. how important life was, how important it was to enjoy the moment, to treasure every mm-hmm. single experience and, and move on. And, and you don't get that until you get, if you're on a race like you were, you don't get that until no. your body, and even more than your body. I mean, I, I get idea from your readings, you know, your, your, your spiritual connection. You know, the, mm-hmm. that, that higher part of yourself says, we're not doing mm-hmm. this anymore. Yeah, I, I, also, I mean, I don't think you experience life until you've failed. I'm a massive, yeah, massive was, fan of failure. <laughs> right, that's what I one of the questions I want to ask you. Mm. And, mm. You, you. and I read that in one of your blogs, and it, mm. it really illuminated because, like you, anything I set out in my life to do, though I was never a workaholic, I do. I wanted to play too much and enjoy all of the beautiful things, like my family, my kids, my, you know, all of the nice things that life presents, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and I, I was, I was on such a roll. I never, I, I, I couldn't remember the last time I failed, and I failed uh, recently on a, on the biggest gamble of my life, and mm. you know, feeling all kinds of like, what happened? I, I, I just, uh, this is alien to me, in recent, my, my recent, and I went to a, my daughter, stepdaughter graduated from high school last year, and the speaker said something that shocked me. He said, and I know you're a kind of a fan of hers, Oprah. He said, let me start mm-hmm. off by quoting Oprah. He said, expect to fail. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked. I said, why is he talking mm-hmm. about failure with kids? And he says, as as Oprah says, if you're not failing, you're not trying. You're not in the game. Absolutely. Because you can't have mm-hmm. success mm-hmm. without it. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm a big fan of Oprah. Huge, fan of Oprah. And I agree. Yeah, so, and, I, and I, you know, when I reflect and I look back on, on my life, and even today, I mean, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I can fail epically, and it really doesn't concern me in the least because all I have learned everything I need to know about myself standing in the shadow of failure. It's where I learn what I'm capable of. It's where I learn who I've got around me and if they're the right people. It's where I come face-to-face with who I am and what I'm here for and if my passion is strong enough to allow me to get back up. And if it isn't, I'm doing the wrong thing. So, you know, I, I believe that risk has reward. And I think that resilience Absolutely. is the biggest. But I don't think you get that. And, uh, and if you're not prepared to, to risk, you don't fail. And if you don't fail, you don't get resilience. So I think that we need to be teaching our kids that failure is okay. I'm not convinced that we are. We certainly aren't doing in the UK. I don't know how you, if you're any better at it. But, oh, you know, God, we don't no, all... particularly teach right. young people to fail. Well, you know, I mean, here I was, you know, I'm in my late 60s now, and here's this guy, and you know, everything happens for a reason, I believe, and, you know, I feel mm-hmm. that you, you feel the same way, and Rosemary knows the same things, and, 
you know, mm-hmm. so he's talking about failure, and I'm like, wait a minute, he, this guy's right. You know, it's the old Teddy Roosevelt. It is not the critical counts. It is the man who's in the arena, whose face is marked, who fails over and over again. Mm-hmm. And and and, mm-hmm. um, and I and I all of a sudden came to grips. I said, you're right. Every everything that ever meant all my successes were just okay, great, and you celebrated, but you really didn't learn. Mm. much from in fact i just saw a documentary on edison and he says i always the only thing that ever i was afraid of was when something worked the first time because he didn't have to fail and struggle to get there (laughs) so so i think Mm. this is really essential and i think just emerging i mean and and when i saw your last post about resilience uh by the way i just want to tell the listener the people who are listening live it's going to shut off in about 10 seconds or so but you'll be able to hear the whole show on a podcast so you're right i think this is extremely important to talk about this failure aspect and how mm-hmm. essential as, as oprah says it's essential mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think that we over nurture and over protect people from risk so we don't allow them to make mistakes i mean you know i i mean i've had lots and lots of success in my life and i have to be honest that's not where i've learned anything you know, I'm far right. too busy spending the money and having a good time. I haven't really <laughs> learned that much about myself. It's only when I've failed or I've been on the cusp of serious, serious failure that I've learned and I've stepped back, um, and you know, and, I, and I've built that that resilience. But we 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 over nurture our children, we over protect them. Our school system doesn't allow them to fail. It's all about you know, outcome, outcome, outcome. And um, and as parents, I think sometimes we're too overprotective. Which is why we've still got children living in their with their parents well into their twenties, which you know is to to me is is just you know if they're perfectly capable adults, they should not be living with you at twenty eight. They should be having their own life at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, we definitely definitely overprotect. You know, I again I I resonated the first time I read uh, came across you, and you know I I. My daughter came to me at the age of 18 and told me she was ready to quit uh, drama school, which all her life, mm-hmm. she, all she loved was dancing, et cetera. And uh, <clears throat> we, you know, and I think it's integral to everything you said, uh, you know, I've talked about before. I took her to a counselor, and the whole objective was to get her to stay. And we gave her every mm-hmm. logical agreement. And at 18, this kid taught me more about life than any mm-hmm. previous encounter. And she looked at mm-hmm. both of us and said, no, I'm not going back, and the reason I'm not going back is it's not in my heart. And so I came back home, and I said to her, because her mother uh, had problems with alcohol, and I was it was a whole codependent dysfunctional relationship, I said I wasn't going to mm-hmm. allow this kid to live in my house and become myself to become a codependent again. So I said, at the age of 18, I said, I have to send you to the school of hard knocks. You are now out. Mm-hmm. Get a job and mm-hmm. get a place to live. And it was the mm-hmm. best thing. And everybody, you're right, conventional wisdom said I was a, a, a creep. Yeah. But, you know, she, and she told me six years later that she was telling some of her friends about it. I said, well, weren't you angry with your father? And she said, of course. She says, but if he didn't do what he did then, she was living in Crested Butte, Colorado, one of the most beautiful places mm-hmm. in the world, and says, if he hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here today. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, we're, you know, parents, uh, we're not supposed to be, you know, the other the conversation I have with parents all the time is you're not supposed to be your children's best friend. You're supposed to be right. their parent. Right. You know, they've got enough exactly. best friends. They don't need another one. They need you to take 
some responsibility and, you know, maybe set for the things that they don't want to hear. Um, you know, and we've got, we, we also, we've got such a young generation of parents now, haven't we? So, um, you know, we've got a lot of teen parents. We've got children having children. And so, you know, there, there, there's lots of complications um, around the kind of values and the things that are being passed on because you can't teach something that you don't know. Right. You know, so you can only right. pass on what what you what happened to you, can't you? Unless you are exactly. an enlightened individual and you've invested in you to make better decisions, um, you can only sort of pass on exactly the same thing that happened to you. I mean, that that is not my philosophy because clearly I've invested an awful lot in my own personal development and who I am, and I and I I'm the complete opposite um, of my parents, complete opposite. Um, but you know that's because I made a conscious decision to <laughs> not be like that. <laughs> if anything that most parents do pass on, it's that gift of, of you've given me something not to emulate. <laughs> Absolutely, it's, it's like rebel or repeat, isn't it? It's rebel yeah. or repeat. But you know, I I mean, I have a lot to be thankful for from my parents because I, I, you know, my. I think that they taught me an awful lot without realizing it. And right. um, I have a lot of the the good qualities of my father. You know, I have his entrepreneurial spirit. I have his charm. Um, I have his social skills. Um, I just like to hope I don't have some of the other things. Um, but, right. you know, I do. I, I, as an adult, I can look back with hindsight, the wonderful thing that it is, and look at the gifts and be appreciative for those. And I did that when I forgave them, and that was many, many, many years ago. Um, you know, so I, I can kind of move on with the gifts and not worry about the rest of it now. But yeah, you know that that forgiveness. Yeah, you talked about yeah. the anger, and you know, obviously Louise Hay talks about that the, the forgiveness aspect, and that is so essential, isn't it? If you're going to grow as a human, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you can't because otherwise you're just giving away your power, aren't you? I mean, if you you know, if you can't learn to forgive, then that will just eat away at you and yeah. continue to make you ill and continue to make you unhappy. And, you know, when I kind of started working through all of this and looking at, at, at my journey, I understood so much about what, what was going on in that household. And, you know, that I mean, I wasn't responsible for it. I was a child, but I kind of understood it. And I understood where my mother was very quickly in, in terms of her jealousy and her feeling excluded from that relationship, and her feeling alienated, and I understood all that so quickly. Um, and and I also found out a little bit more about their background as well as part of my journey, and you know the tough backgrounds that they came from. I mean, my father's a self-made millionaire, but he still was born into poverty, and so you know his journey and what he went through. You know, they probably thought they were the best parents ever. So yes. you know, I had to just let it. I had to let it go. I had to let it go. I didn't have anything else to do. Of course, it would have because you you're right. Oh, exactly. Ex yes, I mean, you'd, you'd end up. You, you know, um, I, there's so much. I mean, I'm just overwhelmed by you. I mean, I was overwhelmed when I read your stuff, but to hear your, you tell your story, just is seriously. I'm just uh, bewildered here. There, there's so much <laughs> to do because I'm, I'm, I'm also seeing. I, I also speak to the inner city schools, and I see these kids, and it's mm -hmm. just awful how th th everybody is adrift right now. The parents are mm -hmm. adrift, the kids are adrift. 
Um, is there something that you found? Is there a key element that there's something that you hit in these kids that helps them wake up and resonate and helps the parents wake up and resonate? Mm. Mm. Well, you know, I think everything comes back to the same thing, and it's all about self-belief. I think all yep. the work that we do in schools, all the work that I've ever done with women and men, all the coaching that I've done, you know, everything comes back to this sense of self-belief. And so everything that we do in school is based on that. We're all about mindset. We're not interested in you making the right career choices or, you know, what friends you choose to be with. We're all about getting the right mindset because we know that when you believe in you and, and you genuinely believe that you're good enough and that you genuinely can see that your, your natural gifts and your talents, you will make the right decisions. You will respect yourself. You will say no at the right time and yes at the right time. You will make the right decisions about what you want to do in life. And so I think it's all about self-belief. And, it, and it, if, as parents, if we don't have that, then we clearly don't pass it on. And so, you know, my whole emphasis is about being a role model. You know, my whole emphasis, my all my work now um, and the books I've just written, it's all about saying to women in particular, because that's my niche, you know, we need to step up and be the role models that that next generation needs. And if we're not doing that, then they will copy us. So if we don't believe in ourselves, if we're not authentic, if we're not resilient, um, if we're not comfortable in our own skin, if we don't believe in ourselves, then why on earth would you expect them to? Because they're only going to copy us. And it's exactly. not about listening to what you say. It's about watching what you do. And they're watching exactly. what we do. So, you know, they will copy what we do. So if we are fixated on our appearance, if we're on a permanent diet or detox, if we're popping out for Botox at lunchtime, if we don't care about ourselves, if we don't believe in ourselves, then they will pick up on that. So for me, all my work is about saying to women, find your voice, find your voice, believe in you, and show them how to do it. That's what it's all about. That's beautifully put. That, oh, my goodness. This is, a, you know, there's a couple of shows that have happened recently that I tell people this is a must listen for you. And this show certainly is a must listen for so many people. And, you know, uh, the pivotal point for me came when I, you know, the doctor had told me when I had just received a brand new bicycle and I asked him if I'd be able to ride the bicycle with one leg and mm -hmm. he told me it was impossible. And, I uh, finally got on the bike, and it was a, the first time I clearly heard the voice and understood what it was, you know, and mm -hmm. the voice kept, kept saying to me, ride the bike. And so you're right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's the key, isn't it? You mm, found absolutely. all these other things were distractions, but you found the real you in that voice. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we should, that's what needs to be emulated. So I always say to women, you know, I, I, when I speak to women and I, I speak um, to groups of women all the time, I always say to them, before you sit here whining to me about the next generation and about young people today and about their attitude and about their this and about they've got no gumption and they've got no courage and no get up and go, I want you to look in the mirror. I want you yes. to look in the mirror because I want you to tell me how you're showing up for them. Yes. You know, are they looking at you? and saying, do you know what, Jane, when I grow up, I want to be just like my mum? Or yep. are they saying, you know what, Jane, when I grow up, I am not doing what my mum does? 
So before yes. you even tell me, you know, what you think is going on with the next generation, look in a mirror. And Beautiful then we'll have put. the conversation. Beautifully put. You know, I, you know, it's very easy to get angry at this generation. They seem so disconnected, uh, and, and there's a lot of things that are certainly a problem. But when I looked, you know, I'm always looking for the deep reason. What is the real reason? What is the real mm-hmm. you? What is the real reason? And I look, and it hit me. It was like a thunderclap. I said, these poor kids were parentless. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about a parentless generation, not physically. But emotionally, you know, psychologically, uh, nurturing-wise, et cetera, they were, mm-hmm. they were born, they were thrown into a daycare, and the parents mm-hmm. saw them for maybe an hour a day. There was no family meal, nothing family-centric, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they were all, everybody's off racing for the material stuff. And so what, what chance did these kids have? Yeah. Well, they're le- where are they getting their cues from? Where are they learning about life from? The Internet, social media. Porn, right. films, mm-hmm. games, game software, which is just dreadful. I mean, this is where they're getting their lessons from. This is where they're gaining their cues from. And, you know, they're, they're, the, the kind of world they're growing up in is incredibly challenging. I mean, you know, I'm 50, and it's nothing like what I was doing when I was their age. Um, you know, so you look at 12, 12 plus, 12 to 14-year-old girls and boys. I mean, their life model is so challenging, um, you know, I mean, yes, we've all experienced peer pressure, but it's nothing like it is today. Um, you know, the kind of early sexualization of girls, the media, the sick media that we've got that tells them how they should look and how they should behave. The fact we took porn off the top shelf has not helped us in any way, shape or form because that's where boys and girls now learn about sex. And we all know that that, 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 that is just not real, but they don't. We've got this absolute influx of reality TV, so the past 10 years, our TV channels have been taken over by reality TV. You and I know that that's fake. They think it's real. So the number one role model that girls talk about in our classrooms is Kim Kardashian. Um, yep. They think she's absolutely awesome. You know, I just want to yep. cry. <laughs> um, yep. You know, So their world is very, very challenging. and It's very easy for us to misunderstand that or not get it because we don't have any understanding of it because it wasn't like our youth. So it's very easy for us to say, oh, they've got it really easy, these kids. You know, I didn't have this, I didn't have that. But actually a lot of it, you know, we were better off for not having. Oh, by far. You know, I mean... So they they have got a very tough landscape. Yes, yes, exactly. Is there, again, I'm looking for... uh, So you're saying, basically, you know, look in the mirror. You know, if we're going to change this this next generation, there's any hope... Mm -hmm. It's what we've decided to do it for ourselves. And you found your voice. And, you know, it was what I think is absolutely fascinating about your story. You did everything to run from it. I used to tell people, I said, you know, you can only run from yourself so long. But eventually yourself mm-hmm. will catch you, just as yourself mm-hmm. caught you yeah. and, and took away your speech and took away your ability to even yeah. walk. Mm-hmm. Said enough, and, and, enough. <laughs> exactly. So how, how do we... What's the first step? Do you tell them? You just tell them that there is indeed a voice in there. I mean, how do you how do you do it? Well, it, you know, the younger people you work with, the easier that conversation is, because you know, I think um, you see it happen a lot quicker. So when we work with young girls, um, you know, on our, our key program is a mentoring program called Big Sister, 
And once you invest in those girls and you give them a role model to talk to and to express themselves to and to talk through what's happening, and somebody is there to listen to them, picking up on some of the things you were talking about, about absent parenting, if somebody's there to listen to them with an objective viewpoint and isn't there to judge them and isn't there to tell them off or to put them right or to tell them what they can and can't do, is just there to listen to them, then they will find their voice because they're allowed to express it. They're allowed uh, to talk about beautifully, it. Yeah? Beautifully. If you're put. constantly told to shut up, be quiet, this isn't about yep. you, put your hand down, yep. go out to the classroom and stand outside until you can be quiet, then what chance have you got of finding your voice? Exactly. You know, we're called beautifully girls out loud put. for a reason. <laughs> you know, we want <laughs> girls to be loud because we want them to talk. So nice. um, we're often nice. noisy girls. We like noisy girls. Nice. Um, nice. So, Jane, so that's how we, we do get it. Shut off, it's really gonna... very simple. Right. Jane, they're going to shut simple. us off. I, I gotta. Okay. I cannot thank you. Will you come back sometime? Of course I will. Of course I will. Wonderful. Oh, it's just a gem. I've studied personal development my whole life. I have never heard 45 minutes better of amazing content. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you, okay. Rosie. Wonderful. Yes, Jane, it was wonderful. Thank you. Speak to you again Thank soon. Thank you so much.